following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Let's turn our Bibles again to Isaiah, if you would, please. We've been doubling up on Isaiah, reading morning and evening here, trying to make some progress in this lengthy book, Isaiah, and 47 now. We finished with Israel, my glory, earlier this morning. While people are turning there, let me just give a greeting. Chuck, it's good to see you here tonight. Carolyn, you too. <laughs> I like that. Salute. That's, ah, that's great. As one of our brothers says, wild horses wouldn't be able to keep me away, he says, from the church service. That's a wonderful testimony. Glad that you are back out and about. Isaiah 47, please. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off your skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness." because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from when, where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You shall not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall, be, it shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus they shall be to you, with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. Boy, what a futile hope they had, wasn't it, in the, in the Chaldeans there. 
All right, for the balance of our message time tonight, I'd like to ask you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. We've looked at the Beatitudes, and uh, we've looked at salt and light and the fulfillment of the law, down to verse number 20. And then we began to look at the moral teaching of Jesus in the sense of kind of reiterating what the real intention of the law was for the nation of Israel, as over against the perverted interpretation that had become popular during the time uh, under the leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees uh, in, in uh, first century Israel and, and somewhat before that as well. And so the Lord rebukes them uh, for those things. We saw that the whole message is under the umbrella of the message to repent. Okay, All of it's under that. You can't skip past the repentance message and then come to the moral teachings and say, aha, I know how to live now. No, you have to start with the repentance part. And this sermon explores what it means to be a repentant sinner. The concern of the divine preacher is clearly on internal matters, we said. He talks about uh, murder in the heart, as we looked at last time. And he talks about being blessed if you're poor in spirit, mourning over sin, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Now, in this section, uh, Jesus is kind of explaining the true intention of the law of Moses. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And often after that, you have heard it said, he quotes a portion of the law or some twisting of that law and uh, calling forth in the minds of the hearers what they have heard from the Pharisees say, the Sadducees, as to how they're supposed to uh, follow the, the the Mosaic law. And, of course, the people may not have had access directly to the body of the law code. Just as you could imagine, if I took, right now I went through the auditorium and I took all of your Bibles from you and kept them from you for years and years, and all you had to do was, all you had to do with the Bible is hear what I said about it, I could easily hoodwink you if you didn't know the word, right? If you do know it, then you're saved from that uh, potential for being hoodwinked, but uh, these people might not have had uh, the full access as we enjoy today. And so Jesus is saying, you know, I'll tell you, the tradition says something, but uh, the actual intention of the author of the word was of something else. Um, and so Jesus is explaining. Now, we know he's not undoing the law of Moses because in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, I came not to abrogate it or whatever to fulfill it instead is what his intention was to complete it not to destroy it and so when he says you've heard it said but I say he can't be saying Moses said this but I'm saying something different what he's saying is you're taking what Moses said and you've run with it some direction and put some traditional spin on it and then uh, I'm telling you what the original really was all about you remember for example the the people would say um you know, well, they knew that the Bible said in the Old Testament to honor your father and mother. That included some um, financial honoring, you know, if you have to care for parents. And they went ahead and said, yeah, but if what I do is I declare all my goods to be a gift to God, then I'm released from that obligation to my parents. Uh, he said, you've taken the traditions of men 
and elevated them to the place of the commandments of God and, and actually undone those commandments. Um, so the Lord is teaching us that uh, the law is not about mere external obedience or obedience to the matter of the law, uh, the, the letter of the law rather, but it's internal in the heart. We get back to that internal thing once again. And so he spoke about murder in 521 to 26, and we looked at that. Uh, he said, uh, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he's getting to the heart of the matter of what murder is, where it comes from. It comes from hatred. It comes from anger. Uh, it comes out of the heart. In fact, that's what the Lord said elsewhere. Remember, he said, what goes into a man does not defile him, but that which comes out, that which is in the heart, murders, adulteries, all kinds of things, those are what defile a person. So if you have a hatred towards others, that is the root of which murder is the fruit. And you can't say, well, I didn't go to the full extent, so therefore I'm clean. No, God is saying to us, if you have the root of that sin, then you have the sin and you're guilty of that sin before the Lord. So we talked about abusive language uh, and hateful and spiteful uh, language and so on. Um, last time. We also caution ourselves not to make a, a mechanical application of this as if, you know, when he says, uh, for example, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. We said, look, just because that's the case doesn't mean that Psalm 14 is in sin when it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Uh, it's speaking in a dispassionate, factual kind of way, saying that the foolish person is one who is not wise because they deny the reality of God, which they know to be true in their hearts. This is the angry, abusive, slanderous, blasphemous kind of um, declaration here in this text that you fool with that hateful anger behind it, not the kind of uh, level-headed statement about somebody's place before God in either wisdom or in folly. Now, he, he goes on, and this is very good for us at the Lord's table in chapter 5, verse 23, because although we don't have an altar, we do have a place of worship, don't we? And that place of worship is, for example, well, it's here in the church every Sunday, but it's at the Lord's table tonight in a more specific manner. And he says in 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, and then he goes on to the section about the officer and uh, be thrown into prison and all of that. I want to focus, though, on 23 and 24 just for a moment. If you're about to begin worship, and at that time, remember that somebody is feeling angry at you or you are feeling angry at someone, then you need to make that right before continuing to worship. That's the application here. So uh, you have a problem with uh, your spouse, another church member, family member. Get that straightened out before you come to worship. Don't let it stop you from coming to worship. Like, Don't just say, oh, give up. I'm not going to go. Uh, that's not right. But you need to be reconciled to that brother. So the picture here is of someone coming 
at that time in the first century, before 70 A.D., to the temple to worship God. But the same thing applies to us in Christian worship in the church, at the table of the Lord, at evening prayer time in the home, or whatever. You need to make sure those things are worked out. Sounds kind of like uh, what Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, right? Deal with that. Get it done. Forgive. Put it behind you and, uh, and move along. Otherwise, you will not be able to worship effectively, truly before God. Now, the last verses of this section are basically, if somebody's so angry at you that there's a matter of law involved, you better take care of it very fast. <laughs> take care of it quickly. Um, and so Jesus says, agree with him while you're on the way, lest you get delivered to the judge, officer, and prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. I think this talks about a hardness of heart. Don't be so hard-headed. Just take care of things. Get them right. Make restitution if you have to or whatever it is that's necessary for that to be ironed out. Okay, So that's murder, the Lord's teaching on murder. Then he moves on to the teaching on adultery. And I think we haven't touched on this, this last section of verses 23 that I just mentioned, nor after that. So this should all be new material for our series here. He talks about adultery next. And in 27 to 30, the Bible says this. And this is, the, by the way, the second of six sections in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that have to do with the internal character of the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that applies, by the way, vice versa, if you will, for a woman looking at a man. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 29 and 30 gives somewhat of a remedy for this sin. I'll talk about that in, a, in the appropriate spot here in a moment. But first, we'll look at the command from the law and then Jesus' expansion or explanation, rather, of the intention of it. The saying quoted by Jesus is one of the Ten Commandments. And uh, I'll go uh, to the Deuteronomy 5 expression of those commandments, Deuteronomy 5, 18. You could also find the same in Exodus chapter 20. But it says in Deuteronomy 5, 18, very simply this, you shall not commit adultery. That's number seven of the commands. You shall not commit adultery. Obviously, a very important and necessary command for the Lord to elevate it to a place in the Ten Commandments, along with coveting, lying, stealing, murdering, honoring parents, remembering the Sabbath day, and, of course, the commands about our relationship to God, not making carved images, not using His name in vain, and so on, not having any gods before Him. Very important teaching. Uh, the Lord says, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. Now, it, so it sounds fine, right? It's not quoted incorrectly. It's, uh, there's no additional 
you know, uh, kind of footnotes or, or uh, you know, a little exclamation points there or anything like that to, uh, to uh, undo what it says. But the problem is that that's as far as it went. God viewed, what I mean by that is, they said, well, if you don't actually commit adultery, then you're fine. But that's not quite true. God viewed sexual purity as so important that he assigned the death penalty for those who violated it. Did you know that? That's pretty, that's pretty serious. We don't think about that today. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10. Leviticus 20.10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's how God thinks of it. So besides the Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Leviticus passage, those are the first three verses in the Bible that use the word adultery in them. You won't find any others that use that word before them. The fourth is in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Let me just uh, look that one up and share it with you as well. It's Proverbs 6 and verse 32. It says this, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. There's a bunch of occurrences of this word also in the prophets, but often those are spiritual uses of the literal idea of adultery where God's people adulterate against God by going after idols. They replace their husband, God, with idolatry. Okay. Once again, the prevailing view seems to be that it can't hurt if you're only looking or I'm just window shopping, or whatever. That's sin making an excuse for itself. The desires, once again, like with anger and murder, the desires are where the act of adultery comes from. So Jesus says, if you're lusting after a woman you look at, then you're guilty. That's where the defilement comes from inside, Matthew 15, 18 to 20. The outside act is only an evidence of an inward problem and has often been said long before the outward act, inward sin was festering like a cancer for a long time. And uh, let's be clear with ourselves that none of us is immune to this kind of sin. Okay? We cannot say, I'm clean, I'm pure, I'm, I'm uh, unassailable, by this temptation. Let's not fool ourselves or try to put on a face of righteousness that way. We need to think about this very seriously. Long before the outward act, inward sin was festering along like a cancer for a lengthy period of time. And so you have to kill those cancer cells before they turn into a metastasized disaster. Early detection is the best medicine, isn't it? Note that since marriage is between one man and one woman, biologically born that way, sad to have to specify it like that, but we have to today, any relationship outside of that kind of marriage, 
whether it's a heterosexual or homosexual relationship, that any of that deviates from God's holiness and his sinful and unacceptable behavior. Before marriage, after marriage, gay marriage, or in between marriages, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Sexual activity is not permitted. Adultery, fornication, and those things are illicit in the law of God. Okay, So let that sink in for a moment. Ask God to cleanse you in any wise in which you've failed in that department lately, and recognize that this demonstrates, among other, these other commands, how hopeless our situation is. We need the righteousness of Christ to cleanse us, to give us a standing before God that is acceptable, uh, because we cannot do it on our own. It's utterly impossible. Now, the Lord gives strong medicine for this cancer in verses 29 to 30. What is that medicine? He says, if your right hand or your your right eye or your hand offends you, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because it's so dangerous to give in to such sin that it could be that which leads you down the path to Gehenna or hell. So what is he saying here? I've often said this, and many have as well, very wisely. He's not recommending self-mutilation, okay? Not recommending self-mutilation. This is hyperbole to teach this truth. Deal with sin radically. Deal with sin radically. Deal with it sternly, strongly, without compromise, Do what it takes to get rid of it. Think on other things. Learn self-control. Ask for help. Meditate on the Word of God. Go somewhere else. Avert your eyes. Focus your attention and energy on your spouse. Get married instead of burning with passion. Get rid of the technology that's causing you to stumble, my friends. I've had to um, advise people in the past that very thing. And they, well, invariably say, well, I'll try that. Or, I can't do that. I mean, in this age, how can you not have, well, I remind them, you know, like, like this phone here. This is, this, is the, this is the chain, the ball and chain that hooks so many people into issues of this sort. And I say, look, I easily remember back to a time when we did not even have these. Can you believe that? (laughs) Yes, says one generation older than I. (laughs) You can live without a cell phone. Yeah. Right, was it like this, you know? No, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Yeah, I had the rotary dial one when I was growing up too. You know, to have to have the uh, tone dial was uh, was an upgrade. Cost more, right? Pulse dialing was uh, the cheapest way you could get it. So that's what you did. Yeah, we actually that's true. When we first moved to our house in Chelsea, out in the country, we had a party line. Yeah, oh, that's different. Yeah, talking to the operator. You know, it's easily the case that you can deal with life without having that ball and chain. If it's going to capture your attention, you need to get beyond that 
And maybe in some time, you'll be able to go back to using a phone or whatever after you have gotten yourself under control. Self-control is the issue, is the issue. And so Jesus is saying, look, do what it takes. Do what's necessary to get this sin under control in your heart. Notice again, this is a heart issue. It's not, you know, everybody out there is at fault for tempting me. No, it's everybody in here, which is me, tempting me. It's not, it's, you know, temptation comes from myself, not from God or all the filthiness in the world. Do you think the filth that we see today is anything new? People have been doing this sort of thing. Oh, the technology wasn't there, but it was there, you know, still. All of the world is and has been full of adultery. Everywhere you look, temptations to it, allusions to it, innuendo about it. And Jesus is saying you need to deal with that sin radically, radically. Number three, divorce. Divorce, marriage is a binding contract, if you will, between a man and a woman. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. True enough, we can see that from Deuteronomy 24, there was that part of the law, but then he says this, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I know you're all wondering what's my position on this verse and how do I explain that, right? Yeah. Um, Let me give you a couple things to chew on that I think are helpful. First of all, let me take us over to Matthew 19 because it's a parallel passage. And what I'm going to try to get at here is that the Lord is saying, you people have this fixation on, well, the Bible says we can do what? Uh, Give her a certificate of divorce. And, uh, you know, that's like the get out of jail free card. And everything's fine. And so they got fixated on that, and what did they miss? What marriage is all about. They missed it. Matthew 19, 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a great, great multitudes followed him. And the Pharisees came and testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Notice they're testing him, okay, first of all. They're not asking an honest question. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Didn't you read that, Jesus says? In, in, in your infatuation with this little out clause, you've forgotten what marriage was supposed to be. Okay? So then, verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That is the divine standard. Why didn't they, why didn't they become infatuated with that verse? I'm, I'm infatuated with that verse. <laughs> That's what I want my marriage to be. That's what I want all of you who are married to, to experience. 
that that is a permanent union of a man and a wife until death parts them or the rapture that comes. Let not man separate. So how is it that you take this out clause that's given in Deuteronomy 24, for example, and you kind of override the whole program that God has for marriage and the family? By the way, Satan loves nothing more than to destroy the foundations of society by destroying marriages, ruining children, and, uh, and, and even redefining what marriage is. When, you def- when, you, when, when the foundations are chipped away at when they crumble, the whole society has nothing upon which to rest. And so that's what he wants to do, Satan. I mean, we should not be ignorant of his devices. This is obvious, isn't it? should be obvious. And then they said to him in verse 7, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? See, they're saying, well, we want to get to that part of it. We don't like the other part of it. And he said to them, Moses, here it is, because of the hardness of your hearts. See, we're going back to the heart issue. Angry with the brother, murder. Lusting in your heart, adultery. Want a divorce in your heart? Hardness of heart? Divorce, this divorce issue? And so he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. This is such a shocking teaching to the disciples, which, by the way, tells you how it should be correctly interpreted by us. It's such a shocking teaching that they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, in other words, if marriage is to be permanent, then it's better not to marry. But he said, well, not everybody can accept that. You know, eunuchs do, but others do not. And so if you're going to enter into marriage, you have to know upon what terms you're entering. On God's terms, it's permanent. It's permanent. All right, so let's go back to Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Why did God give this command? It was because of the hardness of heart that God permitted them to divorce their wives. The regulation that he gave was a way to... As, uh, as the word regulation implies, regulate the sinful excess of people and to keep their behaviors fenced in to a reasonably orderly existence. Not that it would be you know, a free-for-all or that marriage would just disappear and people would just do whatever was right in their own eyes. There would not be, therefore, total anarchy. That's what I take that law to be doing in Israel. So it is true that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was the legal prescription. That is what finalized the dissolution of a marriage and drew a line in the sand where a woman could go to be with another man, another husband, without being guilty of being married to two men at the same time. If you remember also the Deuteronomy passage says if she leaves the first husband to a second, she is not allowed to come back to the first husband. That would be inappropriate for her to do that and for the first husband to do that. But what comes before that is done, what comes before a divorce is a decision in the heart to divorce in the first place. What comes before the divorce is an attitude that divorce is okay. What comes before is a growing hatred for one's spouse. What comes before divorce is a lack of love 
toward your spouse, a lack of obedience toward God, a glut of pride in yourself, and a lack, a lack of submission to the Word of God. What came long before the divorce, perhaps, was a poor selection methodology for picking a potential mate, holding in mind the fact that marriage is designed to be permanent. It's not a trial run. Okay, It's not a you know, 60-day trial period, full refund guaranteed after the trial period ends unhappily. And if you want to be happy, you need to follow God's plan for marriage, not quit and try to find happiness somewhere else. You're going to take your misery with you, it seems. Now, in addition to what I just said above about there being a lot to consider preceding the divorce certificate, there's another matter to consider after the divorce is finalized. Jesus elevates the divine instruction of marriage by moving our attention to what happens afterwards. It is assumed here, human desires being what they are, that a divorced person will seek to remarry. They will seek another spouse. That being the case, both spouses will likely be both spouses in a divorce will likely be remarried to others. What then? Jesus says this, if you divorce your wife for any reason, any reason except for sexual immorality, then, I'm saying if you as a man, he, then you or he is causing her to become an adulteress. Why is this? Because when she remarries, she is with another man that is not the man that she promised herself to in the first wedding. Okay, Now, as you know, I am just preaching the word here. I know there are a number of you that have gone through this experience in your life. I'm not saying anything against you, but you have to know the truth. The truth is right here on the printed page. So if somebody has divorced his wife, what does it say again? Any, if, if you, uh, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, is that what you want to do to the woman to whom you are married? And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That is, it's a two-way street there. Okay. Are, are you really thinking about that when you go through the whole process of thinking about divorce? causing her to become an adulteress. Now, let me, let me kind of, I'm going to refactor how I said this. I might go over this again in my notes with you, but let me just say it this way, kind of extemporaneously. This is interesting to me, that there is one result of a divorce situation, one sin result of a divorce situation. It's adultery. Because if the marriage is dissolved on the basis of the exception clause, what is the exception clause for? Adultery. So that means the marriage ended surrounding the whole matter of adultery. And if the marriage ends for any other reason, which then itself would be a sin because it wouldn't be in accordance with the exception clause, if it's for any other reason, then it ends up where? In adultery. Okay, so that means that 
the marriage bond is either broken by the person and they, they, they totally dissolve it after adultery or just before when they go on to be with another spouse. So, what do we do with this? Well, given that a pastor could never advise a person who is divorced to go go ahead and commit adultery, brother or sister, that cannot be. So, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer to this little conundrum. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What does he say? Because of this circumstance with adultery, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he kind of takes it to the next step, if you will. He says, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. What is he saying there? He's saying, this is what the Lord taught, and this is how the disciples interpreted it. They said, man, this is a hard teaching. The implication of this teaching is, what? A wife is not to depart from her husband. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried so as to what? Avoid the adultery, right? Or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So the same thing goes both ways. So on the, this teaching is so stringent that the Apostle Paul says there's only one way that we can deal with that. The pastor would have to advise the people, okay, if you're going to be divorced, I mean, there's sin involved in that. You shouldn't be. But if you are, then you have to be remain unmarried or what? Be reconciled to your spouse. So that's why the disciples said, wow, whew, this is a hard teaching, right? Uh, and so w- whatever you believe about the exception clause, and I, I have taken the position in the past that this does refer to a situation like Joseph and Mary experienced. Joseph having to mull over what to do with his wife who he thought was unfaithful to him in the betrothal period. But whether you agree or disagree with that uh, estimation of things, the point is still a very stringent definition of what marriage is supposed to be. Would you agree? Am I reading it wrong? (laughs) Now, what do you do if you have not quite followed this uh, prescription for marriage, as many in our number have experienced? Well, what is the blood of Christ for if it's not for sin? Thank God for the work of Christ. Whatever, and, and listen, there's no calling out this particular sin as something worthy of, of more uh, opprobrium than any other kind of sin. I mean, look, I already just hammered away at all of us on this one about adultery in the heart. We're all there already. We've struggled with that, probably most of us. Murder in the heart, divorce problems, we're all sinners. And we need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sin. David, King David said, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Wow. That is amazing. We remember that at the table tonight. Whatever your background is, 
You might say, boy, I know, I know, I blew it. (laughs) I've blown it. I'm still blowing it. I'm still not living correctly for the Lord all the time. But you know what? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So if you find yourself kind of going back a little bit into the shadows, get back into the light. Get straight into the light. Get into the Word of God. Be in your church. Be with your people. Hold yourself accountable to them and they to you, and you'll be able to do what Jesus said. Look, cut that sin out of your life. And you find by and by that sins that you struggle with before, you're able to grow out of. You're able to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And then you'll find more little things that get you know exposed. And that's good because you want to be more holy, more Christ-like. And so we leave that with you uh, this evening, and we'll have to pick up from here the next time the rest of these uh, things on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. Uh, carrying on with oaths, uh, as, as my Bible has, going the second mile, I talk about vengeance in my notes on that, and then also loving your enemies. And we'll find some very interesting things as to what the, the uh, Pharisees were doing with their teaching on that on that matter of loving enemies. It's incredible what they were doing. So we'll stop there on that for now and ask you to ponder for a few moments these things. If there's anything you have with the brother or sister you need to take care of, now would be a good time. Uh, if you have some sins to confess, now would be a perfect time for that as well. We've reached the 7 o'clock hour. We're going to share the elements of the Lord's table Uh, But let me just pray first, and uh, we'll close this portion of our service, and we'll have to bid good night to those online once we do that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the great privilege of being here before the Word of God, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear his teaching as he speaks to the disciples, talking about murder and adultery and divorce and the purpose of marriage, what the original design of it was. And Lord, these things can be very convicting because we have all struggled with them all. And I pray that you would help us, encourage us, strengthen us, those that are believers in Christ, Father, that we would know that the blood of Christ does cleanse from all sin. All sin doesn't doesn't exclude some of the special big sins, so to speak, as people think of them, but all sins and the small sins and the many sins that we struggle with day by day. We'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.